Hey, it's Nick, back once again. Now, I hope you all had a cracker January as uh, did we here, because it was our biggest month ever. 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 Or, well, since records began, so since July, that is. And to be fair, the messages of support are flooding in. I think we had, uh, was it three in as many weeks? So that's, that's kind of cool, isn't it? Whoop, There was a guy called Frank Corey sent a message about enjoying the chats, and I almost had to have words with him, as he kind of confessed I listened to the podcast out of sequence. I mean, does he think I put no thought into the running order whatsoever and just randomly pick a subject with no forward planning? I mean, he'd be right, but that's hardly the point, is it? Also, shout out to two old mates who've both been in contact to say they're listening, and uh, and more importantly, they're enjoying the show. So that's I like to hear that, you know, because ego and all that sort of stuff. There's a guy called Pamps who I've known for absolutely years, but haven't seen him probably since a sunny stag do many many years ago. And also, a guy called Big in Martindale. He was a few years above me in school, and he was a cracking rugby player. Yeah, I remember scoring for Bangor Grammar in a final in Ravenhill, which is now the Kingspan Stadium, home of the Ulster rugby team who play with a red hand on their breast, you know. When I've scored a few meat pies there myself, you know, but no, no real need to mention that, eh? unless unless you want me to, of course. Right, well, no takers, okay, well, I'll just keep those stories myself then. Quick social media account is Twitter, uh, at a rev history, is at 84, and Facebook, a reverend history, is 71. But let's get on with it, shall we? This is episode 12. Ain't no fun in 1641. Learn of the past, but answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. So some of you might be all, 1641? I <laughs> no shit that happened in 1641. Barely even know what happened in 1641 today, let alone almost 500 years ago. Well, if you're from Ulster, or to a lesser extent, Ireland, then apparently you do. Apparently it's actually ingrained deep in your psyche, whether whether you know it or not. That's called hereditary hate, or at least that's the term I just made up for it. In a known iron context, it's when you hate someone because they're from the other side of the shitty divide, but for no other reason than just because. It's really high intellectual debate, I'm sure you'll agree. But what if there's more to it than that? What if we can actually place a time, or even an event that pinpoints exactly when this happened? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? As chance would have it, I've been reading about events that divided the Protestant and Catholic communities. Would you credit that? Let me just take a few seconds here to say that see when delving into these two dates, the volume of information is staggering. And that's why it's taken me so long to get one of these out. As I was like Nick Van Winkle, you know, except instead of sleep and I was just stuck in a massive rabbit hole for ages. But with the positive side here is that we should have another one out in the next week. The Bonnie dates Clyde, or, or at least it's positive to me, anyway. But to fill you in, because I know you're busting a gut to find out, aren't you? The two events are... In 1641, the Irish Rebellion, and in 1649, it's the Siege of Drogheda. As the mathematicians amongst us will, I'm sure, already have worked out, the two are only separated by less than a decade. They are seen by many academics as the core reason as to why there is such animosity in Northern Ireland, even more so than Billy and James, or BJ for short, which is an abbreviation I'll try not to use because it just makes me snigger. But the Rebellion and Drogheda are like the OGs of the Great Divide, the Biggie and Tupac of, of Ulster's long story. And even if you don't know it, those really smart people of academia tell us that this is exactly why you have hatred in your heart. Deep, ingrained hatred. But what happened to cause such a chasm? And what if, just what if, history's misled us? Thrown us a little bit of a spoof just to stoke some flames and follow someone else's agenda? Does that mean we can all shake hands and move on? Who knows? But to find out, when I grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking. Ain't no fun in 1641. Woohoo! So picture this. You're poor. It's a Sunday. You have a tiny bit of land you plot in Mid-Ulster. 
It's most likely raining, you live in the 12th century AD, so your house is probably fairly wet and damp. You're a middle-aged bloke, and your wife's always complaining about a bloody draft maker, chilly. But you live in a shitty hut, so there's not really much you can do about it, and you've told her, but does she listen? No, of course she doesn't. Anyway, you've been working in the fields all week, and you're a bit tired, muscles are sore, and this isn't helped by the neighbours popping over late last night and bringing a bottle of their homebrew like they always do. One drink led to another, and before you could help it, the father-in-law's led to the gills, and he's trapped you in the corner of your mud hut for the umpteenth time, is retelling you his stories all about the Viking invasions, how horrific life was then, how Brian Baru fronted up and showed his hairy bastards just how to fight, though how old Mal Shacknell got him in the end, didn't they? Another side of your one-room shack, you can see your neighbour's son, looking like he's wanting to get a little bit too familiar with your daughter. The wife, she's oblivious, she's not her in the way to your mate, but the atmosphere's good and for once you're almost happy. So you just let the born out bastard continue yakking on with the same stale tales he's been telling for decades. Even though he must know that you know that he wasn't even born at the time. It's like this unwritten agreement that you have that you let him blether on and he in turn pretends to like you. So you just smile, you get comfortable and listen again. Anyway, you manage to clear out the neighbours just before sunup. And while your head is splitting and it seems like you've been asleep for all three minutes, you can hear the neighbour getting ready for mass. Which is shit, because if he goes, that means you have to go or the clergy will kick off. Then you hear the hooves of horses. Oh, Jesus, you think? Horses are for rich folk. Must be the feckin' landlord. What's he want? Holding back a boat and wiping the bile from your mouth with your sleeve, you slowly rise from the floor and stumble out the door flap. As the light adjusts your eyes, you can make out a silhouette like sauntering towards you. He's wearing funny clothes and talks with a weird twang. Probably a southern bastard you can hear your father not grumble from behind you as you utter a hush for fear of getting beat to death. But even through the haze of your mind, your spidey sense just knows that something's rotten in Denmark. And guess what? You're right. But even you don't consider that the first real invasion of Ireland had just begun. Sure, there'd been no natives in Ireland before, yet... Even the Vikings had only really taken the coastal towns, and Ulster itself had been protected partly by location, a fair distance from Dublin that it was, but also due to the unruliness of its inhabitants. But this was different. About a century after conquering England, the Normans were a bit of a loose end, so they turned their beady Gallic eyes in the mysterious island to the west. A chunk of land that even the Romans had thought was too wild, as their historian Scrabo declares that it was all due to cannibalism and incest. And obviously the Romans weren't into that, like, were they? But just what did this invasion mean for you? As a pleb, a commoner, a scumbag farmer? Well, pretty much nothing. No need for change management back then. You still had to do your usual work as normal, just under a different boss. Maybe your rent went up a bit and you got roped into building a castle or something. But it was generally business as normal. And the same for your kids and their kids. And down the generations, as these new lords began to intermarry with the natives, their clothes became more colloquial and their thick accents faded and far from destroying the culture. If anything, it actually destroyed them, consumed them, and despite being historically French in heritage, they would become known as the Old English, and more crucially, Catholic in heritage. Over the years in Ireland there would be a few more plantations, shipping in more of the Franglais settlers and, and reallocating more land, but these were not major moves. Well, that is until Henry VIII kicked shit off big style and demanded his right to divorce and eventually going all Protestant. This, I probably don't need to say, would have serious ramifications for Ireland. It had previously been ruled by the English monarchy under a declaration from the Vatican, the infamous Bull Laudabilitor. But those of the Rosemary Bades weren't so happy to see the prods taking charge. 
Henry, instead of being church-appointed ruler of Ireland, became self-appointed king of the land, and he and his successor Elizabeth I began to push increasing number of settlers in, into trouble spots, especially in the Munster as a response to the Desmond rebellions, as obviously the best remedy to trouble is to stoke it, isn't it? Oh, Lizzie, in cahoots with the Earl of Tyrone, when Hugh O'Neill tried to pacify insolent Ulster once and for all. Hugh, with some of his brothers Pew and Barney McGrew, were embraced at the English court, but took exception to events at home, so, as you do, revolted, and despite some notable successes in being backed by the very powerful and very Catholic Spain, they were defeated. And at the end of the Nine Years' War, Hugh abandoned the island, taking many of the powerful Gaelic-Irish lords with him. This would become known as the Flight of the Earls, and left a massive power vacuum behind. One that the new king, James I, decided to fill with a highly ambitious manoeuvre known as the Ulster Plantation. The historic and simplistic view of the plantations, the, the kind of one we were taught in school, was that a billion settlers, mainly from the Anglican England regions or Presbyterian Scotland, sailed across the Irish Sea to be welcomed with huge tracts of land, and that the locals, they were just bucked out. It may surprise you that that is not really accurate. The truth, it seems, runs much, much deeper. Let's first say that it was proposed to James I as a way to make him rich, as despite being a king, he was pretty poor. He spent most of his money lavishing gifts on young men with, quote, <coughs> firm buttocks, and take from that what you will. Also, the plantation itself did not happen in as large numbers as it had originally been touted, meaning that there were not enough immigrants to keep the farms running. So many of the Irish tenants that had been living in the lands actually never left and continued working as normal, though probably paying a higher rent for the privilege. Much of the land gifted to the planters had been had been forfeited due to a few small-scale rebellions by the locals. Because if you take on the crown and lose, they usually take your lands and your liberty and sometimes lop off your head. And this was swollen by the flight of the earls, which facilitated the kind of the influx of the menacing money men, spying not just a bargain, but a way to spread religion 2.0. In a previous plantation in Munster, they had actually been forced to spend more than they had made, as the locals there didn't really take too kindly to their new landlords. But James had been listening to the words of Sir John Davies veteran monster planter who wrote a book in 1612 with a catchy title of a discovery of the true causes why ireland was never entirely subdued until the beginning of his majesty's happy reign <laughs> what a sycophantic wee creep he is but in that he speaks of quote one king one allegiance and one law unquote he believed extending common law to Ulster would create a quote a mixed plantation of british and irish that they might grow up together in one nation with the blessing of god it will secure the peace of ireland assure it to the crown of england forever and finally make it a civil and rich a mighty and flourishing kingdom unquote bravo to him eh he got a right in the money didn't he just like listen to feck and nostradamus Mears. The planters did flow in, though, with Arthur Chichester, the Lord Deputy of Ireland at the time, describing the Scots, the kin of his king, we have to remember, as, quote, worse than Irishmen, which, at the time, was quite the burn, let me tell you. And he wasn't alone in his thoughts. It's a well known that within the ranks of Scots planters were many vagabonds and rapscallions, border reavers, seeking a new life, absent of prejudice and repression, so obviously they chose tolerant Ulster. But despite how they would like to think of themselves, the English were also not so well to do either with the minister at the time writing about how those given land, quote, in general, the scum of both nations, Scotland and England, all void of godliness, who seemed to rather flee from God in this enterprise than to follow their own mercy, unquote. Basically, it's a flotsam and jetsam society, or scum of the feckin' earth to take the brazen tongue for a second. Though the Scots, they generally fared better than their uppity English counterparts. Their climate and culture was more alike that of Ulster, and they were more used to a life lacking luxuries. 
If they were as scummy as suggested, then it's not such a stretch to think that they may have been quite uneducated. So you wonder just how much they knew of their destination. How was it sold to them? A new life on an island of the West. A new start in fresh, friendly and fertile farms. A dream come true, you know, moving away from poverty to a land of freedom and tolerance. So off they tripped, haggis in hand, Scottish shelter painted in their drab blue faces, many happy to be heading to the home of their heritage, wondrous tales from Supergrand echoing in their ears. But when they arrived, they quickly realised that the lamb was already settled. And kind of like Leo DiCaprio on the beach, you know when he recognises that the weed doesn't grow naturally? Not in rows. The trouble was surely in the post. And you would think this this mix of cultures would cause some proper friction. You know, pre-troubles troubles. And I'm sure for some it did. But for two of the factions, the Gaelic Irish and the Presbyterians, oddly it brought them closer together. Mainly, and unsurprisingly, against the English. Because the English were constantly pushing the Anglican religion on them. As through English eyes, the Scots were seen as only marginally less pure island their Gaelic counterparts. In an attempt to break this unlikely union, acts were passed into law in the early 1600s, legally limiting the number of Catholic tenants permitted in lands and restricting their locations within those lands. But contemporary population surveys suggested these edicts were largely ignored. There's anecdotes of Ulster Catholics serving as church wardens and interacting in legal courts and changing their customary dress and rituals, becoming more like the planters, possibly as a canny mode of survival. The same goes for the landlords, who cared more for money and getting their crops in than they did for religious zealotry. Now despite the apparent friendliness above, there's no doubt that many Irish lost their lands and removed great distances, but not necessarily due to being transplanted, if that's the right term. It certainly is a primary cause, but because of the culture change. If you remember what Brian Baru's handle means, Brian of the Cattle Tribute, that's a declaration of his wealth, you know, based on his cows, the more you have, the cooler you are. And that was standard across Gaelic Ireland. But for the English, it was coin, it was key, and many Irish struggled with this. They were bankrupted by the banks who, weirdly, didn't accept cows as down payment. On top of struggling with the new economic tender, many were screwed over by their own, with the age-old process of loaning cows becoming quite the burden. Former tenants and cow borrowers took advantage of the reduced powers of their landlords and declined to repay their dues. Now, I'm sure there's some moral crusaders that would be horrified by this. you got to pay with Joe. But think of it like this. You're getting the opportunity to not pay your mortgage, yet still keep your house. What would you do? But many Irishmen drove their liberated cows elsewhere and effectively left their landlords with land, but with no means of subsistence. And they had to forfeit and go join the bands of Woodkern, or outlaws, living wild in the forest. And I'll bet those landlords held no grudges whatsoever, eh? But more than that in a second. Other grudges would certainly be due to the behaviour of some of the English. There's obvious things like imposing unwanted religion and culture, but other reasons like just being total dicks at best. In 1577, some warring Irish chiefs were invited by the English to a conference at the Wrath of Malama in County Kildare to ratify a temporary peace. There, 200 or so were lured into a fort, and once inside, they were slaughtered to a man. I mean, it's mind-blowing that they fell for that. I mean, I had not seen Braveheart before. It's one of the oldest English tricks in the book. Treachery 101. And a few years previous to that in Ulster, Sir Brian O'Neill of the Clan of Boy invited his long-term foe, Walter Devereux, to his castle for drinks and nibbles. Walter, the Earl of Essex, brought a full retinue and he thoroughly enjoyed his host's lavish hospitality for three full days. So much so that on the third evening, just as Brian and his family were retiring, Walter summoned his men to bring some glinting gifts. Yet, yeah, you may have guessed, it wasn't treasure. These gifts were axes. 
and Walter sees Brian's family and then, quote, put all his people, men, women, youths and maidens to the sword, unquote. He then shipped Brian, his wife and his brother to Dublin Castle where they, quote, were cut into quarters. It's a beautiful world we live in, isn't it? Now, I'm sure there are more examples of dastardly dealings, but were they the norm? It's hard to say, but just as water is wet, rumour mills will spin, and no doubt in the Robin Hood-esque campfires of the displaced, impoverished and angry, these wood kern had no qualms in sharing and believing the worst of them. So just to recap here, in the melting pot there were four groups. Firstly, the Native Irish, which were those families that held land for generations, though by the norms of civilization, generations back they would have probably fought for the land at some point themselves. Secondly, the Old English. Catholic in religion and gentry, landowners such as the Normans, Tudors and the Scots that had been in Ireland for hundreds of years. And thirdly, there's the Scottish planters, the Ulster Scots, just above the Irish in terms of scumbaggery. And finally, there's the Anglicans, or the master races they would have seen themselves. Land was transferred between the four groups by cash or by collective force, so it was a cosmopolitan society with a definitive pecking order, yet despite many well-documented issues, it was holding together. But unfortunately, events would conspire to turn that shaky piece into a vast and horrific murder zone. Ain't no fun in 1641. Woohoo! Now I've always said there's a great connection between the Scots and the Irish. I mean, we used to holiday there when I was young and I went to uni there and you could just feel it, feel some sort of similarity. Yeah, there's unique differences, but there's just a familiarity with the place and their character, you know, the whole shebang. And the religious tensions are also there, you know, the Rangers-Celtic sort of divide, so to speak. And in 1638, there was a Scottish revolution about religion that would have massive ramifications for Ulster and Ireland as a whole. New king and all round ball-bag Charles I had the audacity to try and introduce a new prayer book to Scotland. One with papist leanings, the vile blighter that he is. Well, this didn't go down well with the Presbyterians. And when the minister of St. Giles began reading from his new book, Jenny Geddes, a bloody woman no less, threw her stool at the minister and channeled her inner train spot and screeched, Dare ye say mass and malag? Just to clarify, I think she threw a stool she was sitting on and not her defecation, just to be clear, but can't be sure. Anyway, the disgust that this enforced new prayer book was the catalyst for the Scottish Covenant, and it was signed by over 300,000 sons of Scotland, and probably daughters too, but without the alliteration, it just doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? Actually, that's maybe sexist, so 300,000 sons and daughters of Scotland. In short, it demanded a free Scottish Parliament and a free General Assembly, and crucially, it pledged allegiance to God above all or anybody else, effectively ousting the King from his place as the Head of State. So, uh, what's this got to do with Ulster then? Well, give us a second. Build an update, right? And we shall start with Phelim O'Neill. Yes, uh huh. He's no Neil, and you're probably already thinking that he has entitlement issues, and it's a bit of a troublemaker, and yes, you'd be right. He was one of the deserving Irish. Rich old natives whose direct families had not been implicated in prior rebellions. They were allowed to keep the majority of their lands and even pass them on to their families. I mean, that's quite the big deal, as under Irish law, women were not allowed to pass on lands. But this changed unless Phelim got his land from his mum. And you know what? He still wasn't happy. Educated in London and a member of the Irish Parliament, he resented the shackles that kind of clasped the power of the Catholic population. So ironically, inspired by the actions of the Presbyterian Coventers in Scotland, eh, told you it had a relevance, he concocted a dastardly plan to take the North. This would coincide with an attack on the administrative centre in Dublin Castle, with a two-pronged plan and attempt to put a stranglehold in the country and negotiate improved terms for his kinsmen. Quick, decisive and bloodless were the key words. But it began to unravel very, very quickly. October the 22nd, 1641, Phelan went to his friend's house for dinner, as he had done many times previous. 
His friend was Sir Toby Caulfield and his residence was Charlemont Fort. At one point during the meal, Phelim stood up, raised his glass and stated, Now my lord, you are my prisoner. Toby, loving the banter, and as it was house, retorted, Nah, Sir Philip, you're my prisoner, and all the guests guffawed at such epic wit, clapping and thigh-slapping. Only stopping when Phelim's guards bashed in the door and took a lot of them prisoner. Control of the fort followed, and attacks spread out into much of Ulster, taking strategic buildings in Monaghan, Fermanagh, Armagh, Tandragee and Newry. Down in Dublin, things did not go so well. The co-conspirators, Maguire and McMahon, decided that the best pre-rebellion preparation was to have a few eels, which led to McMahon speaking a little too loosely with his tongue. A man with a grand name that I really struggle to say, Ferdinand de Warner, quotes him in his book, the history of the rebellion of Ireland, as saying the Irish had prepared men in all parts of the kingdom to destroy all the English inhabiting there tomorrow morning by ten o'clock, and that in all the seaports and all the other towns in the kingdom, all the Protestants should be killed this night. Now, there's a few things to be said about that statement, assuming it's accurate. It doesn't exactly align with the bloodless coup that Phelim apparently wanted, as McMahon is talking about whacking all the English, but what it does suggest is that they didn't really consider attacking the Scots, which is significant. Also, he talks about how many men they had ready to fight for their cause. Yet a large proportion who had agreed to the revolt, they decided to wash their hair instead. But it was inconsequential, as McMahon's drunken boasting led to his quick betrayal by his old mate O'Connolly. He got arrested and carted off to jail before he could cause any further bother. Two days later, Philem issued the Proclamation of Dungannon which would later be proclaimed again in Newry, by which he declared the king no less had okayed the rebellion in a letter that came from Scotland with the royal seal. Supposedly, and permission to grin smugly if you get that reference, but supposedly within the letter it gave permission to, quote, arrest the seize of goods, estates, and persons of the English Protestants within the said kingdom, unquote. Or end quote, not unquote. It also mentions to leave alone the, quote, places, persons, and estates of our loyal and loving subjects, the Scots. End quote. So again, we have the Anglicans being targeted, but not the Presbyterians, but by royal decree, and Phelan was rising at the behest of the king, apparently. So Phelan, we need to recap here again, as I'm even getting a little confused myself. In England, it was Charles and his Anglicans against the Puritans. In Scotland, it was the Presbyterians against the king and his Anglicans. And in Ireland, it was the Irish and the king against the Anglicans, with the Presbyterians sandwiched slightly uncomfortably in between. I hope I've got that right, as it doesn't really make much sense to me, and even less so as the king later denied all knowledge of the letter. But it was too late, as the Furies had escaped the underworld, and the fit was about to hit the shan. Ain't no fun in 1641! Woohoo! Within days of Philem's actions and announcements, he had lost control. The angry underclass, many of whom had lost their lands either by the intervention of the crown or the inability to adapt to the new system joined the rebellion and were slightly less hesitant to shed blood than Phelan had been. Richard Bellings, an Irish lawyer and later a confederate, stated that, quote, for the Catholic elite, the rebellion meant a show of force and then the negotiations. For the mass of people, it was a chance for revenge, end quote. And yes, if you don't know this story, then this is where it takes a real turn towards the bleak and barbaric side of humanity. The Catholic peasantry, fueled by decades of mistreatment and resent, and filled with ferocious intent, went on a rampage of violence against all Protestants on the island, especially in Ulster. They cut their way through the population and left piles of mounting corpses in their wake. 
Some of the things enacted upon the Protestant population is of the most heinous of nature, with rape, murder and torture common occurrences, leading some scholars to liken the atrocities to those carried out during the Bosnian conflict in the 90s, ethnic cleansing on a grand scale. One of the most notorious of all the acts was the one that is still commemorated in Protestant folklore, that at Portadown Bridge. In the dead of night, around 100 Protestant men, women and children were stolen from their homes, stripped naked and herded like cattle about six miles or so to a crossing at the River Ban, where they were forced at gunpoint into the icy winter water. Some were thrown from the bridge, all were to drown, except those that had tried to force their way back to the shore. They were lucky enough to be shot. Elizabeth Price, who lost five children that night, she describes how the, quote, captain and rebels then and there forced and threw all those prisoners off the bridge and into the water and then and there instantly and most barbarously drowned the most of them. And those that could swim and come to the shore, they were either knocked them in the hands and so after they drowned them or else shot them to death in the water. End quote. Now that's hard to read and it's harder to believe that people could do that. Yet there are more stories like this. A Jane Jones said she had seen, quote, 35 English going to execution, end quote. Anne Butler had her home in Carlo ransacked by groups of armed men due to her and her family being, quote, rank Puritan Protestants, end quote. John Temple wrote in a book known as the Irish Rebellion that this, quote, horrid kind of cruelty was principally reserved by these inhumane monsters for women whose sex they neither pitied nor spared, hanging up several women, many of them great with child, whose bellies they ripped up as they hung and so let the little infants fall out, end quote. It was widely reported at the time that up to 150,000 Protestants had been murdered and massacred. Other reports state that it was only the English that had been targeted, that the Scottish had been left alone as the, quote, Irish had no quarrel with them, end quote. Delving into the facts as much as we can, there are barely even 150,000 Protestants in the whole of the island, let alone English Protestants in Ulster at the time. The debate over a more realistic number is actually really interesting. You see, the unionist-leaning historians inflate the numbers and the more nationalist historians deflate them. The nationalist-leaner would say only three were killed and one had the flu, so it doesn't count. The unionists may retort with cries of bullshit. Over a million died at the hands of the Republican scum. But after all the jockey and a number of about 15,000 is popular amongst the more pH neutral. Again then, there's still arguments about how many were actually murdered and how many died due to exposure to the elements. This seems to be a, a 5,000 to 10,000 sort of split, with certain nationalist leaners trying to downplay the number of actual murderers, but the mates are relevant. 1641 is on record as one of the coldest winters of all time, and people were already dying of starvation and cold even before the rebellion so many turfed off their lands. Now, I'm thinking, if I stab you in cold blood and you died, then that's direct murder. Doesn't really matter how you lean, that's hard to argue against. Now, taking into account that I'm not a lawyer, hands up, I would also say that if I was to scoop you from your house, strip you to your birthday suit and abandon you at the top of the morns in the middle of a butt freezing winter and you perish up there, I would argue that that too is murder. So for me the argument is moot. 15,000 dead from direct death or as a result of displacement or as a bit of both. Horrific numbers, however you spin it. Yet it was spun much, much worse across the water in England. They screeched it from the rooftops, howling that the Irish rebels had massacred every prod in the land. 
Graphic tales of genocide, of a Protestant holocaust, and it filled the tabloids, red top rag sheets publishing their grossly exaggerated versions of the truth. I mean, not like the highly respectful and always factual rags of today, such as the sun. <clears throat> no, in this example, lies compounded hyperbole and merged with rumour to create a scene in England of utter revulsion with one consistent narrative, that of depraved papists with a taste of good, clean heartwork and Protestant blood in their tongues, rampaging all over Ireland, and they must be stopped. But did what the papers say really happen? Actually happen? And how would we know? Well, there's a series of depositions that occurred at the time, called, yes, you guessed it, the 1641 Depositions. If, like, if you like a good old courtroom drama like uh, like Suits or LA Law, you'll probably know what a deposition is already. If not, I'll be dead on, and I'll tell you. It's a statement of sworn evidence, and nobody ever lies in those, do they? The original intent was for the Crown to record the grievances of planters, such as losing lands and possessions, etc., but it quickly escalated into possibly becoming the world's first war crime collection, or fucking propaganda, as I'm sure some of the nationalist leaners may say. It has recently been part of a work by Trinity College Dublin, and you can see them online. A link to the site under the show notes at irreverenthistory.com, or, or if you can't bother with that, just type 1641 depositions into Google and you'll find them there. Trinity, they have a crack team full of boffins that have transcribed the work, which you can search to see if you have any relatives that were involved, or, or just if you want to be a bit nosy. And there's even got a handy interactive map allowing you to see where all the incidents occurred. And Ulster... It's so bursting with red activity spots, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was the greasy, rancid, pus-filled bit your teenage self. Oh, the memories. Now, I haven't read these depositions. I mean, come on. I have a full-time job. There's over 8,000 interviews. So, I'm relying on the words of others. And Professor John Morrill, a scholar of Oxbridge stock, would surely be a trustworthy one. And he said that it's kind of split between first-hand accounts and rumours but also that it was certainly, quote, the greatest recorded massacre, end quote, in either British or Irish history. The direct reports seem to paint a picture veering more towards Protestants being robbed, you know, stripped naked and expelled from their homes, but not massacred en masse. Violence was the last resort used to, quote, end resistance, which sounds like a gentle euphemism if ever I've heard one. In 1930, the Free State attempted to publish the depositions, but it was buried with the claim that it would make, quote, dreary and gruesome reading, and they were not to be published without undergoing serious censorship. There was another attempt to publish in the 1960s, but then uh, this little thing called the Troubles broke out, and it wasn't really deemed wise to do it then either. But what did they tell us? What is within the those 32 volumes that is so controversial? Well, many talk about the violence and the depravity, the wild horrors perpetrated by the Catholic peasantry, sniffing a chance to take vengeance for their diminished lot in life. Many of these statements, though, are second-hand. Rumours pass from credible sources, possibly, but hearsay nonetheless. There are still a few that are actual accounts from eyewitnesses, but many declare a source for their information. Now, it's difficult to attach levels of reliability to something that happened hundreds of years ago, isn't it? And it must be said that the words believeth and thinketh occur way more frequently than words like saw or witnessed when talking about the worst atrocities. But before many start thinking, yeah, told you, those orange feckers made it all up, you'd be wrong in that as well, as Edward Slake of Fermanagh would attest. Not only did the Catholics confront him, but they took his Bible and threw it in a puddle. Those bastards. Of course, to make a light of this, something that happened almost 500 years ago, I mean, it's hard to grasp, yet, as we said, it apparently contributes heavily to the state of the country I call home. 
This is evident in, in July parades, when amongst the many King Billy banners, you can also see some depicting the massacre of Portadown, showing the planters being shot and drowned in the ban. There's also a song on YouTube, but there's a few actually, but their laments for 1641, showing that thoughts of and emotions towards the incident still exist, even half a millennia later. The feelings of hurt, they're still there, still raw to some. It would be glib and remiss of me to say that it was just one incident. It wasn't, as we established there were a highly significant number of murders and deaths beyond that of Portadown Bridge, just not at the level of Holocaust as was reported to the masses in England. But just where am I going with this, you may be asking? Well, like the quintessential cliffhanger, all will be revealed in the next episode. The culmination of this two-parter. And it involves a reaction to the rebellion. What happened after, or in many people's minds, it may just be who happened after. And here, interstage right, is a man who greatly divided opinion at the time, and still does to this day. Even as his very own curse in Ireland. The man of whom we speak is, of course, Oliver Crabbe. The Lord Protector, the original Kingslayer, reviled throughout Ireland for his deeds in 1649. John Morrell said, quote, The bloodletting was on both sides, but Oliver Cromwell used this as justification for Drogheda and Wexford. End quote. Now, I know I bigged him up earlier and said I'd trust him for the depositions, but I'm going to be a total hypocrite here and say he may be incorrect on in what he says of Cromwell and what we know of Cromwell's deeds, especially of those in Drogheda. Now, yeah, here we go. I know what you're thinking. Probably something along the lines of, what a tit. This guy's already upset the DUP massive by playing down the scale of deaths during the Irish Rebellion. And now he's going to upset the Irish by saying, Cromwell maybe wasn't such of a see you next Tuesday after all. Well, no, I don't have a death wish. Quite the opposite. I just want to get to the truth. Because it's out there. And I tried to make that seem less pretentious by referencing, you know, Mulder and Scully, but I may have failed. Anyway, I hope you come back and listen to the second part, because just like L'Oreal, it's worth it. I hope. I'd just like to say, did we join her tune? Yeah, that's my kids singing, because I wanted to play a part, and I couldn't say no, because they're kind of cute and cool. And also, I don't really have a song for the end here, so I'm just going to play something, and hope you like it. Alright, catch you soon. Laters. We're at the store the other day, could not believe it, walked into the cheese area, Looked down and we saw they had Oliver Cromwell cheese. Unbelievable. Let me show it to you there. Oliver Cromwell cheese from the UK. Isn't that amazing? And uh, so we've tried it. And uh, really good stuff. Cheese with chives and onions. Really good stuff. There is a warning label on the back though. i got to read that. Warning. Uh, may cause indigestion, um, heartaches, and pain in the neck. To Roman Catholics if ingested so just kidding of course there maybe <laughs> so just had to show that Oliver Cromwell cheese isn't that awesome